What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Einswick Dogquip, who is our good friend Jason Furman, and we are recording him now a new ad because it's very exciting to announce that he has Firepaw Mills now. That's pretty cool. Yep. So it's another brand of mill that he has. So he still has the HF mills. You can get those from him. And he's a distributor now for Firepaw, which is, a, I think they're a UK-based mill. And he's got the spring poles as well, I've seen. Yep. Spring poles. Spring pole mounts. All that, all the good gear. So everything you can do if you're into the GRC side of thing, which is really starting to take off around yep. the world now. Yep. Jason's got a lot of that gear available yep. on his website. Well, not his website. He hasn't got a website. No, he doesn't he? Have he website. does Facebook. Bloody Facebook. You got to find him on Facebook. Einswick Dog Quip on Facebook. Get yourself on a bloody website, Jason. Yeah, Squarespace. Not that hard. Yeah. If you need anything, really, he's a distributor for Herm Springer. He can get you branded leashes, tugs, balls. If you need it in dogs, talk to Jason. Yeah, he's great contact in the field. Get you whatever you need. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. Einswick. <laughs> hey, Glenn. Yes. Let's wish the listeners Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us throughout the year. We appreciate you guys listening to the show. It's been a lot of fun to do. Thank you for all the opportunities that you've given to us through the show. Absolutely. Thank you very much, guys. And for you and your family, hope it's a fantastic festive season. Happy Yule. Happy Yule. (laughs) Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name's Glenn Cook and joined in studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. I didn't think this was going to happen today. Yeah, we're lucky, right? Very lucky. Just in short, what happened here over the weekend on Saturday, we had the most cataclysmic storm we've ever had. The apocalypse happened here. Pretty much the apocalypse happened right here and it was 15 minutes of fury. It was only 15 minutes, but in that time, it pretty much decimated our whole area. The Hills area in Sydney is where I live. And the whole hills area was pretty much reduced rubble in 15 minutes of storming. Don't play down 15 minutes. I know a lot of people that would be really happy if they could get 15 minutes of fury. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you want to name them on air? Name and shame. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Where did that come from? uh, I heard you say and I thought, oh, I should have got in that in earlier, but it's still a good good enough joke. It can carry over to the end. (laughs) (laughs) So, it was a big storm. Yeah, it was a big storm. The worst that we've seen in the area. Trees in the area were just bending in half. Like, you'd hear them cracking. We couldn't see out the windows. The rain and the, the shit that was blowing around was just out of control. Like, you, if you're outside, you could be hit by anything. So, mm-hmm. we, had, we could hear crashing and trees breaking and snapping all around us. We were actually worried that it was going to come through the house and land in the living room and go through the kennels because we've got large gum trees and, mm-hmm. and pines and everything around. So... You could hear them splintering, you'd hear like massive banging and everything like that. But there was so much thunder and lightning going on at the same time. I mean, it came from nowhere. It gave us no warning. It was in the area before we even knew what was going on. Mm. And within 15 minutes, the cloud and the rain and everything stopped 
and Blue Skies returned. Crazy. It was like a mothership came over and just started invading the, the area and destroying everything in its path. <laughs> but it was, yeah, the weirdest thing about it was how much damage it did in such a short time. Like even when we sort of realised what had happened in our area, we didn't realise what was going on in the greater area. I mean, how could you? I mean, mm. communications were cut straight away. It, it tore off all the power lines in the area. And we didn't realise that there was something like 500 incidents where power lines were damaged all around the Hills District. Wow. So we were without power for, I think, two days. The whole area was completely blacked out. But as we drove up the road, there were trees going through the middle of power lines. Mm. In West Pennant Hills, which is about 15 minutes down the road from us, there were power poles that had been ripped off and thrown through the front of people's houses and stuff like that. So what we were dealing with even though it was pretty major, was minor compared to the drama that other people put up with because we didn't lose any critical infrastructure. So no animals were hurt, no buildings were- I think were, that's where you're lucky, right? That nothing fell on the kennel. So amazing. Because you're pretty much full now, right? Not quite. No, this is the, the dead period before the busy, busy period. Right. So that was actually another fortunate thing was that we weren't super busy, that were staff here. Or, I mean, if, if there'd been a NDTF group here at the time, all their cars would have been squashed. Right. The trees that fell in the front, which were massive gum trees, landed straight across the area where all people parked their cars. Mm. And even though there were some cars parked there, it landed in between them. It was almost like an expert arborist had cut them down and placed them in perfect positions. That That's they'd, funny. So, yeah, they broke some fences where we do play yards, which we've already got. But, I mean, we had a crew of five people here yesterday. Mm -hmm. They were cutting and chipping and they were here from eight in the morning till six at night. And they cleaned the whole lot up. They've chipped it all up. So, I think they took truckloads of logs away and they chipped everything else up. So, they did about four loads of chips and completely shredded the area up. And we've got Benny, our um, resident gardener out there at the moment. He's sweeping everything up and cleaning everything up. But, yeah, we spent the day Saturday just dragging tree branches off the driveway so cars could get in and out. And, yeah, right. And you can see them all out the front. It was just um, it was just absolute complete chaos. So, yeah, I didn't know whether we'd have power on. I didn't know whether we'd be able to sit here today and do the podcast. Crazy. Crazy. But here we are. Here we are. And it's nice weather again. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But if you look outside, like if you actually go out onto the property and take a walk around, you can see where trees have just completely snapped in half. Like they're from the literally halfway up where the wind velocity was yeah. hitting it at such rage, it was just ripping them in half. Yeah. As I was driving in, the whole area is covered in trees like that. It, yeah. The whole street out there, all like the whole town is torn apart. Yeah. We were very fortunate. And what I would like to do is for people who are listening who did respond and were offering help and food and water and people were offering to do our laundry for us and let us stay at their place and people dropped off generators for us. The community really responded and even two guys, two random guys, father and son, were driving up and down the road. He said, I've got a, a car full of chainsaws. He goes, if you're blocked in or if you need any help getting anything, any trees off roofs or anything like that, he goes, let me know. And I said, we're okay. There's probably people worse off than us. So mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it was so cool. But the whole community responded. Like everybody was helping people. Even when I um, we got power back on, I was watching the, the news shows around the, the local area. There were young millennial kids mm. i don't mean to pick on the millennials but there were like young millennial kids that were driving around to people's houses offering to help people which is it's a bit of a rarity these well, they days do set them up a, a website and update their facebook for them or something <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> uh, maybe tell them about how they could better their um 
their biases. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, poor kids. No, they were actually doing the right thing. They were, like, offering to help clean up and, yeah. you know, drag the trees out of the people's living rooms and stuff like that. So, yeah, some people were pretty badly affected by it. So, mm. I spoke to people in the area who have been here a lot longer than we have and they said that we've never seen storms like this ever before mm. and I'd never have. I mean, we got partially flooded about six weeks ago and I thought that was pretty amazing. That was like nothing I've seen before but I've never seen anything that, that came and went in such a short period of time that did that amount of damage. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you and I were talking about it off air before and we were talking about, you know, imagine living through hurricanes and tornadoes like people in the States do where... You know, like they come out of their bunker and the whole town is gone. Yeah. And I mean, like, not just a tree through the living room, but the whole the whole place is destroyed. You know, their their livestock are gone, their animals are gone, their cars are gone. Mm. You know, like the whole landscape is just completely transformed into an apocalyptic background. It wasn't that bad for us. So I'm not trying to make this into a major, major thing where, you know, like lives were lost because I don't know any lives that were lost. It was just scary in the short time that it happened. That's probably the thing that amazed me most is that it was 15 minutes, only 15 minutes at most, and the carnage that it did in 15 minutes was just incredible. Crazy. It was crazy. And we're not set up for that type of thing. Yeah, I think you that's know, the like, difference. That's what we're discussing yeah. is that where things like it's that happen. It's habituation really, yeah. isn't it? What you're used to. And, and yeah. we weren't, we're not used to that sort of um, that carnage environment where people live in Tornado Alley. They yeah. kind of expect that. Um, although it's terrible and, and um, life-altering for them if it does happen, you know, they're at real risk of being killed. And Yeah, and if you're expecting a storm like that, if that was a regular event, you just wouldn't have those kind of trees around. You wouldn't allow the trees to get to that height and dangerous position like mm. they are. Or you even engineer your buildings to be able to withstand those types of winds and everything. Yeah. A colleague of ours, Mel, did. She lost sheets of, of um, roofing off her kennels and stuff like that, but we have no damage to our actual kennel infrastructure. there's Like I said, there's damages to gates and some gutters got smashed off and stuff like that. So there is damage. Our bird aviary completely blew over. All the birds were rescued. No pets were injured. As far as the animals go, they didn't even realise anything was wrong. They were just mm. sitting safely and <laughs> comfortable and, and warm and dry. Um, no weather got in there, no, no, um, no, um, no drama for them. I think the worst thing was we had a couple of stormphobic dogs that got a bit nervous. That was a that was about the worst thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was um it was an adventure that's for sure. Cool. But um, the one thing that I was really proud of everyone is how everyone came together yep. and uh, the amazing help and support that everyone did. So if you were one of those people and you're listening, thank you very much. We all appreciate all the help that everybody offered. Amazingly, if you drive into the place now you wouldn't realise that, apart from seeing the squash play yards out the front, you wouldn't realise that such a transformation mm. happened uh, over the last couple of days because everyone uh, jumped in and we got services out here really, really quickly. Mm. Back on to uh, our regular show. What are we talking about? What we're going to talk about today is we've talked about communication before and I think what we want to – well, I don't think. What we want to talk about is – the topic of anthropomorphism. Mm-hmm. It comes up in conversations from time to time. We've talked about it in, I'm sure we've talked about it on the show before, probably under the art of communication. Mm-hmm. We've got a whole topic, whole podcast on that. The language side of things that we're doing is so important. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is the landscape or the foundation of what we're trying to set up and adjust. And 
it's amazing when you're talking to anybody. I was just talking to our groomers here on site before and they were talking to me about problems that uh, one of them was talking to me about a problem that she's having with her dog. And she's been to trainers that you and I know. Okay. And um, I'm not going to name them <laughs> on I know by that knowing nod who you're probably referring to. It's not the person that you probably think it is. It <laughs> okay. is, but it is someone that you know. Okay. And there's two people with the same name. Right. And it's the young one of them. Right. So, okay. yeah, people who are listening to this are going to go, oh, thanks a lot, dude. You know, like you're telling Pat everything. But <laughs> well, I'm not going to out someone on... You had to beat me when I outed someone in that other episode. And I got loads of people- Yeah, uh, going, what is it? Who no, is it? no, everybody knew exactly who. People were like, why did you bother? It was pretty obvious who you're talking about. I was like, well, because yeah, I now I can't be sued. That's right. <laughs> so, it could be anybody. They, yeah. they just have to guess could who it is. Could be you. Could be me. Yeah. <laughs> they were talking to me about problems they've got with their dogs. And it, it so often comes back to a point where people are telling me a story about what the dog's behavior is doing- and how it's affecting them. And then they sort of, it's almost like the role of psychiatry mm. is that people will sit in there and they'll download to the psychiatrist. And then at the conclusion of the discussion, most people will go, it's probably me, isn't it? <laughs> and that is a, that's a funny thing that happens. It, well, it's not a funny thing, I guess. It's funny for us because it, we're waiting for that line. Mm-hmm. We're waiting for people to drop that bomb at the end of the conversation. It's probably me, isn't it? Mm. It's not a matter of probably it is you. And it's something that we all have to recognize because the foundation of what you develop in your dog is fundamentally what your dog transforms into. Your dog can't be anything else other than what it knows to be. Mm. If it doesn't know to be that, it won't be that. And that's what I try and... It's not what I try. It's what all dog trainers, the goal and the mindset of a, of a good, competent trainer is trying to get people to realize if you want your dog to understand you, then there can be no error in the language that you're setting up between you and the dog. Yes. It only knows what it knows because of you. So that line, it's probably me, isn't it, is absolutely 100% correct. Mm-hmm. It is you. Now, that doesn't mean that dogs won't test the waters. It doesn't mean that they won't go up and, and touch the fence like a, like a horse would do. Mm-hmm. They're occasionally going to try it to see if the fence is on. A horse is usually conditioned after a few times. It touches the fence. It realizes, I'm not going to touch the fence anymore because it's a sharp contrast in, in operant conditioning. They realize there's no point to touching the fence. But what we find in the language that humans set up with their animal counterparts is that they don't make it clear enough for the animal to say, I'm never going to do that behavior again because it just doesn't result or favor me. Mm. I have a theory on that regarding horses and dogs. Sure. Because I agree with you that like, say people that use a um, electric fence on dogs, it does need to be on all the time and dogs will tend to test it. Yeah. Because horse people know that they need that electric fence from the start. Yep. And so likely the horse has never had any success getting to the fence without receiving the stim. Yeah, it's such a strong conditioning. Well, it's 100%. Mm. They've had no reps to go the wrong way. Yep. Dog people have the problem many, many, many times. Then they go, okay, now I need to off. fix this. I need to fix this. Now I install the electric fence. Now I turn it on. Mm. And so- and because there's this like bias in dog people who want to, um, they want to, they have this feeling like I would, 
I feel better about myself if the fence is not turned on. Then that way, like I've I've put the uh, inhibition in, yep. and now I feel better about not having to use it. He's not going to get steamed, even though it's there. It's people who brag about the collar's not even on. See, mm. he's just wearing it, right? So there is reps. There's reps in the bank where the fence wasn't there, and yep. then there's reps where the dog hits the fence and there is no repercussions. That's which right. Then it, this is what I I'm obsessed with at the moment, and I'm trying to. I'm linking it to more and more things and I'm explaining it to more and more people this way. You then bring out Sapolsky's dopamine jackpot again. You're on a, a variable reward schedule is awesome for increasing behavior, increasing likelihood and intensity, frequency of a behavior, mm. the dopamine within it. But a variable punishment schedule does the same, which is what you do not want. It's so variable punishment schedule is likely to make something happen more and more powerfully with a punishment schedule has to be 100% consistent. You mm. will never find success in that. They're, that's how you get real extinction or you, the behavior actually goes away or an alternate behavior happens or whatever you're after. But it's got to be 100% consistent. And dog people do not do that with the fence. Horse people do do that with the they fence. They do. They do. They're very consistent in it. And that's the great thing about consistency, especially in early learning models, is that the, the more consistent you are, the more likelihood that you're going to carry over, especially when you start with a continual schedule of reinforcement and then move to that variable schedule, mm -hmm. then you're going to get an animal that starts realizing, well, this is just part of behavior. I'm actually reading Sapolsky's Behave at the moment, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. It's very intense. And forgive me because I'm not a neurologist. Um, I don't practice neuroscience as a, as a living, but it's an interest to me as far as <laughs> changing the landscape of behavior. But what Sapolsky is saying is that most reasoning that happens in the brain starts in the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. But what you actually want it to do is transform into the cerebellum, where it becomes not a part of deciding about whether you should do it or not. But if it moves into the area of the cerebellum in the brain, then the brain starts to say, well, I'm just that's just part of the normal behavior that I do. I don't even know why I do it. Yes. I just do it. Yes. So that's what we actually want in brain functioning is yes. that we want it to become a behavior where it's not the animal thinking, should I touch the fence today? Where the animal goes, I'm never touching the fence. I just, I don't need to do it. And I'm not even sure why I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So we want it to become a behavior that the animal bypasses and doesn't have to think today I'm going to see whether the fence is on or off. It's interesting you say that about the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex. That's changed the business name that Operant came on and made that logo. That's sort of the whole idea of it because all the training that I'm doing that, and I think people, most people are doing or should be doing if they're doing it well, is that you create an operant dog. Mm. So he's making all these decisions. And then once he's operant and learns how to find his advantage, you layer over the top classically conditioned signals that bring on those behaviors. Yep. So in the start, he is truly making decisions and that's that prefrontal cortex. Like mm. he's, he's operant, is finding his advantage. But in the end, he's doing it because you said and he doesn't really know why he's doing it, only that he does. It's experimentation. Yeah. Yeah. It's wading through life like most of us do, experimenting what we can do and what we cannot do. Mm. And that's based on the, the culture that you live in, the, the country you live in the religious factors that you reside under. I mean, everything determines what we can and can't do as human beings. But we've got to, as people who own and manage animals, we've got to set them up in a pathway of success almost from the get-go. Yeah. And that's what people aren't doing. And that's why we 
resound back to that problem where people saying it's probably me, isn't it? And it's <laughs> it's the thing that people have got to come to the conclusion. It is absolutely you. Yeah. You are the orchestrator of everything that's going to happen from a puppy into an adult dog. The dog will do exactly what you are. The, it, it will do the landscape that you're doing. As I said before, and I identify this, and I don't want to make people out to say that you can control everything absolutely because nature dictates that it's unpredictable at the best of times. However, when a dog doesn't understand to sit, to recall, to come back, not to attack another dog, I mean, there's a large part of you that you have to say that is because I Mm. didn't spend the time that was needed. And people can claim ignorance in that. A lot of people can because they are completely ignorant in that. They get dogs. There's no real instruction manual on how to how to raise a dog it's mskennels.com full video series absolutely. full instruction manual on how to raise shameless a dog. but essential plug yeah well there is it's, that's it the is. thing and it, it mm. even if that weren't me and sam's video series it is it's it a central learning platform yeah that's right it is a step-by-step guide on how to raise a dog and if you follow those steps you will have as we say in the video series happy healthy social pet that's mm. the idea of it yeah. um and th- there is that's why I have to interject and say there is MSKennels.com. Yeah. <laughs> but there is. It is. That's fair enough. And I mean, we've we've talked so many times about Dr. John Paul Scott. Oh yeah. Critical who, period. Yeah, the critical period of socialization. I mean, that's just one part, an amazing one part, mm-hmm. and a and like an absolute essential root of the part of getting it right in dogs. But there's everything else that's layered on the top of that. Yeah. Like that's the foundation work that needs to be set in concrete. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure because Pat and I were talking off air again. We, you know, prior to doing the show, we often have a coffee. And sometimes what we're talking about in the kitchen while we're having a coffee is, you know, it's a shame that we weren't recording at the time because it's it's essential communication on animal raising and animal learning and learning theory. Um, and sometimes we get most of it down when we're doing this and sometimes it's left in the kitchen. Mm. However, one part of it is the foundation work. The other part, there's two essential criteria in this. One, the foundation and then the the building of the infrastructure around it. Mm-hmm. And that's the part where people fuck it up so intensely is they either don't do the foundation work or they do do the foundation work, but then they don't do the critical infrastructure around that. Mm-hmm. And then they... They kind of think, well, you know, now I've done all my puppy class, I don't need to do anything more. Or they get the puppy and they follow archaic information, which is don't take your puppies out until they're 16 weeks of age, mm-hmm. which is terrible information for anybody. I, I, I don't think I could make that any clearer. I don't think Pat and I or any other decent trainer worth their salt could make that any clearer to you that if you're doing, if you're still following that advice, if you're not taking your puppies out, if you're not exposing your puppies, if you're not giving your puppies critical period uh, exposure, then they're doomed. They're, yeah. they're literally doomed. I mean, as a caveat that we always like to put on the show, we do have to acknowledge that there is a real risk of pathogen exposure. We have yeah. to we have to acknowledge that. That's absolute reality. We have to acknowledge that vets and vet nurses do see terrible things in their clinic and they are exposed to trying to rush all in to save little puppies from getting parvovirus, which we are not advocating that we want to put any puppies or any dogs at risk of. There's never been a time that we've recorded this show. There's never been a time that I've been a trainer that I've said to people, you should risk getting parvovirus. What I'm saying to you is the risk of your puppy or your dog living to adulthood from 
socialization problems is is considerably more prevalent than the risk of getting a pathogen. Yeah. But let's say we are using intelligent design here as a society of people who own and care about dogs. Let's say that we're being thoughtful about everything. What we would do, as we've said on shows before, is manage the areas that we're actually taking dogs into. Yes. Like not taking them into those exposed areas where all the neighbourhood dogs are pissing and shitting all over the place and then having your puppy running around and getting involved in all that. Mm. But taking your dogs to places where there is a plethora of exposure that they can partake in and it can actually set up the foundation for a sound pup growing into an adult dog. So I just want to want to explain something. Sure. My sister, uh, she doesn't work in the industry anymore. She was a vet nurse. Yep. When we did that video series on with Val, she said something to me about how, you know, you'll have a hard time finding vets to support that because you push for socialization immediately. Have one of the one of the biggest videos we have in the series is showing all the different environments and how to manage dogs in those environments in the early phase. And I take puppies out. I get puppies regularly. I've had many. Mm. I take them out straight away. Same. When we got Val, the breeder we got her from, a guy called Alex Hill, who I I think he listens to the show, excellent Springer Spaniel breeder. He even told us, we did not know Alex at the time. He said to us, and we didn't know that he was as involved in dogs as he turned out to be. He's a very good dog trainer and into um, the field dog stuff. But he said to us, without knowing us, said, take this dog out everywhere you can. The risk of exposure to pathogens is way less than your risk, than the associated risk of an under-socialized dog. So thanks Alex. Perfect. Like the perfect advice you could ever imagine to get from a breeder, but he, as it turned out, we didn't know at the time, but as it turned out, he's a very, very good breeder. So I see in forums and I see people talking about all the times like vets shouldn't be giving this advice, but now I want to play devil's advocate and just talk about the other side. What you don't know is how many dogs in your area are being diagnosed with parvo and being treated for parvo, that that sort of thing. Mm. The vets do because they're the ones that are treating it. Of course. So everybody's opinion is measured by their exposure, is weighed by their exposure. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I support that. Yeah. So me and you, our experience is with dogs that are under socialized, therefore have behavioral issues. And that's the most important thing to us. To us. Yeah, to us. And to vets, vets see dogs, sick little puppies coming in, vomiting and shitting all over the place and dying of the horrific death that is the parvo death. And that's the most important thing to them. That's the most important thing to them. Yeah. And I know you've spoken about it before. When you look at the statistics of dogs that do die of illness versus who are put down because of behavioral issues, the illness is a, a drop in the bucket of behavioral issues. Yeah. But because I think about this stuff a lot, because I have a good relationship, yeah, you and I have a good to. relationship with my vet, and I think that what I, I really, really dislike is when I see combative relationships between vets and trainers. Yeah, that's not healthy for anybody. That's not healthy for the industry. Then the thing is, vets don't put down dogs for behavioural issues because you don't. It's so rare that someone would take their dog to the vet and say. He has this behavioral issue. He's, you know, he's fearful, aggressive, blah, 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 whatever. And now he gets put down. What happens is the dog goes to a, a pound or a, a rescue of some variety, is unrescuable and he's put down there. And typically that's by done- By a 
Well, they're not always done by vets. They're often done by the euthanasias are often done by the like people that work there. What are they called? Um, Animal and they, attendants. Yeah, and they may be done by a vet, mm. but it's usually there's a vet that's contracted to do that, and he isn't working in the in private practice, right? So the vets that are working in private practice mm. and are the ones that when you go in there with your cute little puppy. He doesn't see behavioral cases. He or she doesn't see behavioral cases that are so bad the animal's being put down. He doesn't see many of them versus what he sees of sick puppies that are getting put down. So I always like to just point that out. Even though your local vet, his bias is influenced by what he sees every day. And as trainers, our bias is influenced by what we see every day. And you know the statistics uh, where... We're more correct. We're, we're, we're right. The statistics reflect that. But it's only that we sort that out, right? They can't ignore what they know. And the sound advice that a vet would, would and should give to people is they should lay out the real risk of what it is, as they do. Yeah. The only thing that I wish that they would do differently is to say, be intelligent about where you take your dog. Yeah. I don't like the restriction of don't take your pet out until it's 16 weeks of old yeah. age. What they should do is say there is a real risk. And I know vets are doing this. There are more, by design, there are more intelligent vets that are coming on to the dog behaviour circuit yeah. where they are saying to people, the real risk is there. Even though your dog is vaccinated and is starting to go through the vaccination um, circuit right now, there is still a real risk of exposure to puppies being um, hit with parvovirus. Yeah. And I mean... I. I know, and I know there's vets who listen to this show, and I've got to say to you, running a puppy school business in your clinics where sick dogs are coming to, I'm always questioning that fact. Yeah, so this is that. That is what I think about as well. Because I, I, I've never stopped thinking about <laughs> yeah. that, and and you can't justify it to me well enough because, guys, you have to admit it's a business decision. It's not when you're telling people that there's a real risk of getting parvo, and you've got parvo vomiting shitting dogs coming up your car park where yeah. you can't sanitize your yeah where parvo is prevalent in your soil pathways and gardens and everything like that and then you've got little puppies coming to your yeah. facilities you have to take some responsibility on that yeah i know this is controversial and i know people especially in the veterinary world will be looking at me saying you're a bastard glenn cook because you just outed us for something that we don't support but if you if you are a if you are a genuine human being if you are listening to this message you'll have to say yeah that is risky that is genuinely risky well you know but that i'm sure that people who are doing it well they run it in a hugely sterilized area but it's that it's that approach it's the outside of the vet that mm. is the issue where people are bringing their sick dog from the car to the front door yeah i'm sure that all good vets are doing it in a in a room that has been f10 to of the course of course yeah, they are to the nth degree but it's that it's they're outside that they don't control that. That area is exactly the area where you would say, don't take the, the puppy. You know, it reminds me. So when Rip was born, the day after we left hospital, he had like a gastro bug that he probably got from someone seeing, and we had to go back to hospital like the next day. Now, when you're, when you have a kid, right, you're in the maternity ward. It's just babies, no sick people. It's all yep. very nice, except for some sick fucking jerk that gave him gastro. Yep. But when you go back to hospital, you don't get to go there, right? You're in the children's emergency and we're in there with a like five-day-old baby and they – so that's a similar sort of thing, right? Bringing the, the puppy into the vet. And did, the, did you have a school next door? 
Hey, did you have a like a children's school next door? Uh, like no, like in the, in the ward next to you? Or, no, or but like where but, kids came for early learning practices? Or no, no, that's right. But so, but so we've rocked into the waiting room of the emergency with a ba- a six day old baby who's unvaccinated. Like he's had the vitamin K shot and stuff, but he hasn't. You know, six days old, and they were like, "You cannot be here." Like yep. we understand you've got a sick kid, and. But they put us into a totally separate room. Like we didn't wait in the waiting area. They they it was one. It was middle of the night, so it was one of those outpatient rooms that they used during the day. Yep. They fully sterilized that whole area. They didn't let us out into the the other part of the hospital because they're like, you cannot bring a six day old baby into this area full of sick people, <laughs> right? Yeah. But then the same thing we expect to do with dogs. Like we mm. go for our classes in, in the in, area in full of vet sick clinics people. where sick puppies and dogs. No, that's not to say like that's not to say don't do it because there's plenty of people who can do it who do manage it and they don't get sick puppies. I, from I it. know I understand that and I I have to admit there are people that I know that have successfully run puppy schools out of vet clinics and never had a case of sickness. Yeah. that they know of. Yeah. The model can work. It, it does and can work. There's no doubt about it. And that's not to suggest that vet clinics are filthy places where people don't clean and sanitize. I mean, I work and run boarding kennels. You know, there's there's risks of dogs getting social diseases in boarding kennels as well. We know that. However, I mean, you can be in your backyard and still get a social disease. You can take pathogens on the soles of your feet while you're walking around in day-to-day life and take it home, which people have done. Yeah, I know people have, who have had puppies in their backyard and who have transported Parvo home on the sole of their foot, unbeknownst to them, that's the only conclusion they could come up with. Yeah. Either that or the dog next door touched noses with it and it, it came into contact with the virus. Yeah. But somehow the pup got Parvo in an enclosed yeah. and encapsulated look, environment. It, it happens. Mm. That dog we talk about, Ghost, he had Parvo. Yeah. Survived the motherfucker. Nothing kills ghosts but ghosts. Yeah. Wouldn't and he was vaccinated. But I'll, I'll add, you know, like it, shit happens. It does happen. What what I'm more concerned about is um, preventative measures. Yeah. Like, I mean, I wouldn't go and join a gym that was connected in the same bu- building that an infectious hospital was at or where people were going to hospital get, to get treated. I wouldn't go there to, to do gym work. That's just me personally. I know that- because you don't like going to the gym. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, I have been, I'm, but I'm going to a different type of gym now. But I do go- I'm yeah, You've joined the cult. I've joined the cult. And so have you- no, my kids joined the cult. Well, that's connected. Yeah. The so jujitsu cult. You're in the jujitsu cult. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been in so much physical pain muscular-wise. I mean, I, I think going to a gym and pushing weights would be easier than going to jujitsu. Every muscle in your body feels like you've got doms in it all mm-hmm. at once. So you're not just doing one body part. You're doing all of your body parts all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's good for me. I, I mean, I've been a fat fucker for ages, so... Um, <laughs> It's very good. <laughs> All right. Back on track. Back on track. So, what were we talking about? I don't even know. We've just diversified from- Critical period. Yeah, moments. critical period. But I think the well, the message that we're trying to talk about is it all stemmed from people coming with that catchphrase, it's me, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When they're talking about their dog behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're, we're talking about how- more often than not, when there's a behavioural issue, it's the people that are at fault, the owners of the dog that are at fault. Yeah. Again, when we're in the kitchen having a, the pre-talk about what we're going to do on today's show, we kind of discuss the topic of anthropomorphism. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things there that I find that whole subject quite a white elephant mm-hmm. for a lot of people. There's 
a whole range of discussions that have happened around anthropomorphism over a millennia that I've been involved in dog training. Well, it's three decades, not a millennia, mm-hmm. to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, I, I just don't want to out myself and people say, are you really a million years old? Yeah. So, over the last couple of decades that we've been talking about, and really when I learned what anthropomorphism is, one of the discussions around anthropomorphism is how to spell it. I mean, yeah, most yeah. people don't even know how to say it properly. They I struggle. Yeah. But the the reality with anthropomorphism is that when we start to endow a dog with human characteristics, I mean, Disney has done this sort of thing for years, you know, like they've made ducks and mice and dogs and Mm -hmm. elephants into human-like characters. And that's what people have grown up with for also for the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Ever since we've got uh, cartoons and shows like Mr. Ed and Rin Tin Tin and all those type of things, people have looked at it and said, well, animals can understand us like a human Mm -hmm. child can. Well, they can understand us, and this is the whole point of language. But the language has to be very clear and concise, and it has to be the language based on what a two-year-old would know. So they do say, if you are examining the neuroplasticity of a dog, that it's around about two to three years of age. Okay. So if you want proper language to a dog, then you have to relate it to the same way that you would educate a two- or three-year-old. They do know. They understand concepts. They know what operant learning is once we have developed it within the dog once they know the consequences in it. They are learning this from their litter mates and their their parents when they're born, especially Mm -hmm. the mother. I've got great videos that I've shared with people in time where puppies have experimented with behavior and the parents are correcting it. Mm -hmm. So they're learning what I can do and what I can't do from early developmental stages. Then it's up to us. We've got to make everything clear. We've got to make the whole landscape and the whole knowledge base of that dog If I'm fitting in to the human environment, if I'm coming into this household, this is how it has to be. The more anthropomorphic you are with your dogs, the more that you try and treat them like little fur baby humans, the more you are doing a disservice to them. You have Mm. to acknowledge that. It's not wrong to love your dog. We've made that clear. It's not wrong to, to like talking to your dog or having conversations with it. But what is wrong is your expectation on top of that. Mm. Does my dog understand this is it is it relevant to the existence of me and my dog does it make me feel good and it's fine if it makes you feel good if you talk to your dog if you have a conversation with your dog and it makes you feel better about yourself if it makes you feel good if it helps ease a burden that you've been carrying around if it's good for your mental health there's no problem with it whatsoever where it does become gray where it becomes a real issue for the dog is when the dog can't measure up to what you're asking for mm-hmm. or what your expectations are and then the dog can't the dog has no competency around that that's very unfair that's so unreasonable for your dog that's when you do have to come to that reckoning where you're sitting by yourself and thinking it is me yeah. i am the problem do do you think anthropomorphism gets blamed a lot when really people are just being inconsistent and not giving their dog good signals 100% like you know i see a lot of like asshole dogs that are just products of their environment. Yeah. And I see a lot of asshole kids that are just products of their environment. And often I see them in the same household. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. so you can't say that, oh, you're being too anthropomorphic with that kid. Like that, that's impossible. That doesn't work. But it's what you can say is, hey, you're, you're not giving clear signals to, so you're being inconsistent in, in yeah, your language and your, isn't it? 
you know, all dogs, all people, everybody's just trying to find their advantage, right? Everybody's just trying to get through life. Keeping it's the hustle, isn't it? We yeah. talked about this a while ago. But it's the hustle of life. Everybody's just trying to stay out of the red and keep themselves in the black. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's life, right? Yeah. Dogs are trying to do that. People are trying to do that. And you will do whatever it takes to, to get that done, right? Well, and every species that we're talking about, like there yeah, isn't a species on this earth and beyond that we know about, there isn't a species that isn't trying to do the best it possibly can to favor its existence. Yeah. And I think even altruism doesn't really exist. I think that this is an interesting conversation because it's a bigger topic, but I feel, feel like even people who do, you know, beautiful, kind things for other people are relieving a stress from themselves by doing that and are making themselves feel good about it or are avoiding the stress of the guilt they'll feel if they don't, right? So, like, even, you know, like I, I used to make the argument, I'd say, your dog, like there are dogs that will take a bullet for their, for their handler, but they don't understand what the repercussions of that bullet are, For first of all. That's right. And it's not that they're like, I love you so much, I'm a lesser being, I'll take the- I'll die the for you. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't they go They don't understand like that. that concept. Yeah, it's like this, at worst, even if the dog does put itself in danger to protect its handler, is usually a form of like, it can be as bad as this is what's expected of me, and this is what you need for me to do. It, mm. it's, it's, it, more often than not, it's just training. The dog doesn't understand the danger it's in. That's the reality. But when that really does happen, it's not that the dog's like, I'm giving myself up for you. It, and it's, I feel like it's often the same with people in that, yes, that's what actually happens. Someone might make the choice in order, you know, in an extreme circumstance, they might give up their own life for someone else. But it's not... It's because but they, they're aware of that too. That's, that's right. And but that's it, what makes us human. But the when you unpack it far enough, I think that I don't know that that's what makes us human. I think that when you unpack it far enough, it's that like I probably wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't. Right. So then you'd have this constant guilt. So you, that's why you perform the the task. I don't know. But anyway, like that's another topic. But what we what I'm that talking is about quite is deep. Yeah, and that is going into deep waters. Yeah, but so I think that for a dog. They're just trying to find their advantage. And I see anthropomorphism get blamed for a lot of things that I don't think it is responsible for. It's not that people like anthropomorphism is to say that the dog is capable of human feelings, right? Because we, you can't say emotions anymore because we know for sure dogs feel emotions. We know that we're a hundred percent certain of that. And so emotions drive feelings and then the dog can't get, like, I think the difference between us and uh, dogs is dogs can't talk themselves into a feeling. Right. Like they, they can't think, play it out and say like, oh, he left the house. Therefore he doesn't love me and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can't play all that out. Whereas mm. a human can build this whole bullshit story in their brain and upset themselves for it. Whereas a dog's just playing on what I see and feel right now. Of course they live in the moment. Yeah. Mm. And whereas we're able to fuck ourselves up over things that haven't happened and maybe aren't going to happen. A dog, I don't think can do that. I think that they're just living in like, this is the consequence of what's happening right now. And where people were blaming anthropomorphism and saying, oh, well, you're, you're giving your they dog. They don't understand it. That's yeah. why they're blaming it. Yeah. Mm. And so there's a lot of people say like, you know, oh, you've got a bratty dog and it's because you're, you're being anthropomorphic. I don't think they are. They're probably, even to say at that point that someone's spoiling their dog, I don't think is correct. I think that uh, it's that you're, you've built these behaviors. You've rewarded the behaviors because mm. you can spoil a dog and the dog be 
perfect. Like I would argue that my dogs are spoiled, right? Like I give them everything that they could want. I go out of my way I, I to fulfill them. Is that spoiling them or is that- Well, compared to some people it would be. But well, so spoiling is a tricky word because if you really think of that, then that's like spoiling is fucking up. The that's person. right. But so- I. Uh, I think what you're doing is meeting the obligation that you should have as somebody who's yeah, decided I, to take on I agree. Yeah, animals yeah. into your yeah. lifestyle. But like I do a lot for them. Yeah. That's the that's the thing. Yeah. And and I think there's people who think they're doing a lot for their dog but are actually fucking up their dog because mm. they're not doing the right things. Yeah, that's the key point. Yeah. That's the best point in the in the discussion is is that they're not doing the right things. Yeah. You know, perception is Terribly confusing sometimes. Yeah. What we perceive as being the right thing often is not. Yeah. But it's, I mean, and and you can have that argument with, this is why people have been killing each other for, for millions of years. It's based on perception of my God's better than your God or my flag is more righteous than yours. It's a ridiculous concept. But as human beings, we just, we have this crazy perception about things. Yeah. Well, especially when you get into the animal world, it's so controversial. So I have this theory on spoiled dogs and for example, right? So I deal with a fair amount of cases of separation anxiety. Mm. And a lot of the time that separation anxiety is not actually separation anxiety. Well, I mean, it is, but we fix it via just structure in the household. My theory on that is that a lot of people, their actions in the household leave their dog to believe that the dog controls them and not in a healthy way. Mm. Like I, I often point out that in training, I want my dog to think that he controls me because he does in, a, in an essence, he can do the things that will bring the rewards and he knows that. So he is controlling me, but what I don't- But you allow, allow it to happen. That's right. It's, it, he's not actually controlling me because I created those circumstances that where he thinks that. It's funny about that. I had a discussion about the illusion of control. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Mm. So- when it's not an illusion of control, where you actually really are allowing your dog in the household to bully you and to demand things at times and you make a little thug of a dog where the dog actually is controlling you and they really are controlling you. Like if you've got a dog that can guard, like my dogs uh, cannot guard a resource from me in the home. That, mm. that the, idea that, the idea that my dog would be allowed to growl at me and tell me I can't have something that is in the home is so fucking outrageous to me. Yeah. But I see it all the time. Yeah. Right? The dog has a toy and when your people are cleaning up the house and you go to pick up the toy and the dog growls at you like, you don't touch my toy and they allow that to happen. Mm. And they, at worst, I would manage that by, well, then there's no toys. If he's gonna, if he's really the kind of dog that's not going to give up on guarding something, he gets, he gets nothing to guard. At yep. wor- that would be the worst case management I would have it. But I would show the dog, hey, I'm not a threat to your things, but also you don't fucking tell me that I can't touch these things, right? Yeah. But I see so much of that, right? And I often see that in dogs that then have what appears to be separation anxiety because in the home, the dog's sleeping on the bed, which again, I have no problem with under the right circumstances. The dog is heavily controlling the people. It barks, it gets fed. It it can move you off the couch. It won't do the thing. Don't want to do anything that it. it There's no extinction to do. process that's ever been set up. That's right. Mm. Now what happens is the dog thinks he's in control, right? He's well, not thinks he is in control. Mm. Yeah, there's no illusion of control there. That's it's real. That's orchestrated chaos. So then what happens is the pack, as the dog sees it, stays together, and he must be at this point leading the pack, right? He's he's the dominant dog in the pack. But you have to go to work, right? And now no matter the dog in every other f- 
part of his life is able to control you, right? He is able to push the buttons and you do what you what he says and you allow this dog to bully you in the house. But there's a couple of things that he just can't influence and that's the fact that you have to go to work every day, right? Mm. Although there's people who I've seen like alter their whole lives so no one's, they eventually do it. But eventually it comes to the point where I've been called because the dog's got separation anxiety and you just have to go out for two hours a week and the dog can't handle that. Yep. Now, I think that the anxiety part of that comes from that the dog is um, he's, he's controlling you everywhere else. Why can't I control you here, right? We're a pack. We stay together. I don't want you to leave the house. You stay here and you do my bidding for me, right? And then when I can't stop you, all the things that would normally make you stop don't work in this one context mm. because you have to go, mm. right? So I can make you do stuff. If I'm hungry, I can bark at you and you, you, you feed me. If I don't want you to touch my stuff, I'll growl at you and you stop. If I'm on the couch and you try to push me off, I'll bite you and you'll stop pushing me, yeah, right? It's all and based dog on learns success and experimentation. The dog learns all of this. And then when you're trying to leave the house and I don't want you to leave, and no matter what I fucking do, I can't get you to leave, right? Imagine being that dog in that situation where he's thinking, what the fuck? Like, and this is the cause of the stress and anxiety. And as we talked about uh, in the Patreon Dominance episode, like I don't think that many dogs are really capable – you know, this is another conversation that you could go down a rabbit's warren on dominance theory and that kind of thing, right? Which I don't think plays a very big part in training. I don't think that like, but it certainly exists, right? There's a, if you get five dogs, five whales, five people, five ants, ants, probably not, maybe ants is the wrong example, but you put them all in a room within a few hours, it's going to be pretty clear that there's a number one, there's a number two, there's a three, there's a four, there's a five, right? Well, it's all resource dependent, isn't yeah, it? In that room, in that context, right? Mm. But so I don't think, as we spoke about in that episode, not many dogs are capable or willing to be that number one because that's a stressful position. And I think nature takes care of not creating too many beings that are willing or, or want that position. The otherwise, structure there just will doesn't be allow it. Yeah. And otherwise, the, there will be fights all the time. Yeah. it's And I mean, and that's how cooperations are formed. If yeah. somebody realizes, I mean, this is how, this is how businesses are formed. You yeah. know, people realize I'm the most intelligent and the most suitable person to um, yeah. perform this role. And everybody else says, yeah, you are, you know, you're, that's right. You're the elected leader. That's right. And so if that's what's happening in the household, the dog's been saying, well, I'm clearly the CEO of this house because mm. everything that I say goes, right? Yeah. So I'm the boss. Clearly this is what's happening except for this one thing that I can't control and that's you leaving. And then it creates like, oh, I'm a bad leader. There's there's issues of like, why isn't it working? It works everywhere else. Why isn't it working here? And that's where the anxiety comes from. And the separation-based behaviors is, is not that the dog is truly that stressed over the idea that you're not there. It's trying everything it's tried in the past to get you back, mm. which works because you come back. Right. Eventually, yes. <laughs> you do come back eventually. Mm. So what I in those circumstances, this is where people blame anthropomorphism a lot, right? Oh, you're you're giving your dog these emotions and, and the way I've explained it there, but I'm like, no, you're just giving the dog signals that are making it feel as though it is in charge when it is not, mm. because it cannot control this one aspect. You controls everything else, but not that. Yeah. And so the treatment plan that I usually come up with for that is we just put structure into the house. Like this is where the dog sleeps. It can be anywhere, but this is where, 
right? You decide. You decide where he goes. If you want it to be on the bed, that's fine. We're going to teach him to get on and off the bed on command. And if you can't get him off the bed on command, then we know there's an issue there, right? This is when the dog eats. Nothing he will nothing he will do can make him be eat at a separate time, mm. right? This is he eats from this bowl. Don't feed him off the table, right? Like whatever it is. And there's no rules on that. It's just there has to be structure. The, the, the rule, the only rule is there needs to be rules, but that doesn't matter what they are, mm. right? Because I would argue, you know, there's people, there's dogs that have good, that have all those things. They sleep on the bed, they get fed from the table, they do all that, and they have, never have any issues because there's structure around the, per, the way structure. the person it does It is that. always structure. Structure and guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know- But like, this is where it comes back to, where it segues back into this whole point of it's what you understand it to be. Yeah. And it's the same for the dog. If the dog understands what it can and can't do, you've just spent a really good amount of time outlining that perfectly. I can't tell people any better when they say it's me, isn't it? When they say that <laughs> golden catchphrase. Yeah. And if anybody who has said that word or if you've got clients who have said that word, if, if they just listen to what Pat said in the last 10 minutes, he out, I think he outlined it perfectly. Mm. It's, a, it's a very good description of why dogs go through this dilemma of not understanding where they sit in the household. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, mate, 100%. People's perception of anthropomorphism is very muddy. It's always been a muddy topic because it's not based on the way the dog behaves. It's based on how you think about your dog. Yeah. You know, the perceptions that you cast upon your dog, the fact that you've forgotten that your dog is part of the canine familiaris family. It is a dog. It thinks like a dog. It acts like a dog. It interacts and it it thinks and acts and it functions well in our family structure, in a, in a human family structure. But the, the reality is it's still a dog. Mm. It's not, you didn't give birth to it. It's not part of your biological bloodline. And the reality is if you respect and understand your dog as being a dog and you and you know how learning theory works on the dogs, very similar to ours, however, there are limitations of what they can and can't, cannot do. Yeah. Once you understand that, then you're not being anthropomorphic in anything that you're doing. If you don't understand that and you do have thoughts and feelings about your dog as being a baby and that you're trying to raise it to understand you like a human being, you're being anthropomorphic. Mm. You're endowing your dog with human characteristics, things that they can't cannot live up to and they will definitely fail time and time again. Yeah. It's a real problem for our dogs. Yeah. They can't function well and live well under those expectations. It's way past them to do it. It's so unfair and unrealistic that they it's setting them up always to fail. Yeah. You know, something that it raises a lot of eyebrows, especially, you know, in, when there's dog trainers out here and they see me putting my dogs back in the box, that can often upset. <laughs> I've had some people really get upset at the way I do it. In the crate in your car, in you the, mean? Yeah, in the, in the car. Yeah, don't forget, we talk about the boxes, the magic yeah, yeah, box. Yeah, box, right? Yeah. So, so for, for my dogs to get in their crate, I just say box, that's their command. Yeah. But I rarely ever give that command. So- I have this long drawn out conversation with my dogs about how I'm sorry, but their time, to, their, their turn of working is over and they have to get in the box. Right. And you know, Remy puts on the brakes. He fully like locks down. He will not move. I, I just often have to drag him to the box <laughs> and I apologize to him the whole way and I'm sorry. And then he puts his front feet on the, on the back of it and stands up and I will like pat him and cuddle him a little bit. And then I say, I'm sorry, you still have to go in the box. And it's just this funny little ritual we have. Now, I could tell that dog 
I could say box and he'll run and fly into that box, right? But yeah. I don't because um, it I can't reinforce it, right? Uh, so I've taught him to do that and I, I sometimes do, but I can't reinforce it on a schedule to keep that active and I want to keep it, right? So if we really are finished working, I don't want to tell him get in his box and then him get in there with the expectation of getting his ball and then I'm essentially putting him away hot, right? Yeah. But the people have accused me of being anthropomorphic because I apologized to oh, him. With the ritual. Yeah, the yeah. whole go, putting him away. And now, the same thing, I know that he doesn't understand what I'm saying to him and that we have this joke and this laugh about how he's going away. I'm fully aware of that. Mm. But what I am conveying to him in that time is like, it's our wind down procedure, right? It's like, come on, we're walking in. I acknowledge that you want to keep working. I appreciate that. I like it. But- we need to. Yeah, but the, it's so the over. reckoning made him. You know that. You no, understand that's right. that. And that's the thing is, is I actually see anthropomorphism as a sickness. Yeah, but you so, know, so like that's what I mean. Let me just explain. Like when people say, "Oh, you aren't you being?" Because like, people say it to me all the time. Don't you think you're being a bit anthropomorphic? And I go, "No." And you don't understand the meaning of the word. Yeah, like that's yeah, that's well outlined. <laughs> because yeah. it's not at all. We're just going through a ritual. I'm talking to him. I'm fully aware that he doesn't understand that I'm apologizing, but this is our wind down and he understands he's not getting put Mm. in the box. What he understands is that he's not getting put in the box with the expectation of a reinforcer coming for having done it. Yeah. And he's also not getting put in the box as a negative punishment. Like I'm not finishing the session because he did poorly. Right. So you just want him to understand that the box is just a method of transportation and that's it. And, And our session's done. He did well. And now he has to go away. And so I do it in a, a way that conveys that to him. Mm-hmm. And I have intent for doing that. It's not like I do it to upset people and it's not like I do it because I'm really sorry that he has to go back in the box, yep. right? It's just a ritual that we go through where he understands the session ended, I'm going away yep. until the next session. Yep. But people say to me all the time, oh, don't you think you're being a bit anthropomorphic? And I go, no, I do not. And you need to... Look up the meaning shut of the, the word. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Got anything else to add on the the many topics we've covered, but specifically anthropomorphism and how it's probably not the problem that people think it is. No, it's not. And I do believe that we've discussed this with our old mate, Chad. Mm-hmm. On a previous topic. Yep. I'm pretty sure that we've talked about this. And I think Chad's got a very good grasp of what anthropomorphism is and isn't. And what it is, in my mind, is it's your expectation that your dog can think and function like a little human baby can. Mm. And that's your expectation. It's not the dog's ability to do it because it cannot. It's been proven time and time again. It's like the skeptic society for people who have a challenge to say, if you're magical come forward and claim this $100,000, it's yours. Like if you can prove to me and our society, based on our rules, you can can have that money. Mm. My thing to people who can prove that a dog can function and think like a human being, I've said, come and see me, I'll represent you as your agent and we'll be Oprah rich. (laughs) Like in no time at all. Yeah. There's nobody that can do it. Well, you look at something as simple as the ballpoint pen, something that we give them away as marketing material. Name one dog or even one animal in history, even animals that can invent crude tools like chimps can, the Mm. ape family who do have a higher cognition capability. Name one other animal that's ever invented anything even remotely like that. Mm. Well, name one dog. 
Name one dog that's done anything even remotely human-like in that facet Mm. because you can't come up with it. They are perfectly designed and perfectly engineered as canines. Perfectly. Mm. I mean, they're very, they are smart. They're very adaptable. We understand this. We know this as people who have been custodians and guardians and fanciers of dogs all throughout millennia. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that they are dogs. The people who know this, who understand this, who choose to share a life with them and serve them very well and protect them and guard them and care for them and whatever else our roles are with dogs. There's nothing anthropomorphic about that. I love having conversations with my dog Mm. with no expectation. And I could never say that anything that I've done there is anthropomorphic. But if I had a conversation with my dog and I could imagine my dog talking to me or moving its lips and responding and having a conversation back with me, I'd have to say that my mental illness needs to be checked. Mm. And I'm not poking fun at anybody. That's not, I don't think that's a funny thing. But I'd have to say you need to, you need to examine that because that is either mental illness or it's anthropomorphism. Well, you know, there's a good meme. That was around memes in life. Um, of course. I, we usually answer everything in memes. Yeah. There was a guy uh, said like he saw a guy at the dog park after his dog rushed another dog or whatever, get him and he's like, why are you doing this? We talked about this, Darren. <laughs> I think, like that is, that's anthropomorphism. Yeah. That is the best example. Yeah. Whereas, you know, as I say, in dog training, everything really is Make an operant dog, right? Let your dog find his advantage in what he's doing. Control the reinforcers, control the aversives. Let the dog find the correct behavior. Layer over the top of that a command. That becomes a conditioned signal for a conditioned behavior. Continue to reinforce it on a schedule that will keep it going. Mm-hmm. And that's dog training. And you'll never, if that's, if that is, as, that, which truly is as simple as dog training ever needs to be, you will never hit a problem of anthropomorphism following those guidelines. It's when you expect something from the dog that you haven't provided a reinforcer or an aversive to either make happen or not happen and expecting it to happen because you spoke and gave a non-conditioned signal, that, that that's where you hit trouble. That, of course, the caveat to that is that applies to a healthy functioning dog. Sure. We know we're not talking about dogs that have deep-seated social issues and mental issues. Those are other outliers that we haven't really got into. We have in, in past times. Mm-hmm. However, for your average healthy dog, that is the foundation principle. Mm-hmm. All right, let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, like, rate, share, subscribe. Uh, jump onto whatever subscription service you download us from and uh, leave a comment if you can. Leave a review, tell a friend. All that helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month on Patreon will get you access to an extra episode once a month that we release through there, some educational content. We're getting ready to record the next one for January, which is a bit exciting. And you can do more than three bucks if you want, if you're that kind of person. Good on you. It's nearly Christmas. Share the love. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I've got a Christmas present coming for the Patreon guys, so stand by to stand by on that. I don't Uh, even know about this. mm -hmm. It's getting ready. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is on Facebook. We are The Canine Paradigm on Facebook. Oh, I should mention, I am doing some seminars in the States next year. 
One of the ones in Maine in April, they've just changed venues, so there's spots available for that. So if you jump on my Facebook page, Operant K9, there's a poster there. You'll see it there. But it's run by being run by Terry from the Maine Dog Training Company, LLC. I think it's Maine Dog Training Co. at Gmail. Yep. Shoot them an email. You'll find the flyer and the details on it. They've changed venues, so there's more spaces there if anybody would like to come. Awesome. That's it. Glenn, music. Music. <laughs>